Bibles and turn with me, if you would please, to the book of Ephesians. I'd like to direct your attention to this letter of the Apostle Paul, the letter to the church in Ephesus. And you'll find it, uh, the book of Ephesians, definitely in the uh, letter uh, end, toward the end of the Bible. Um, if you are in the larger books of Hebrews and Revelation, turn left. If you're in the books of Corinthians or Romans or Acts, turn right. And I want to direct your attention to Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 3 through 14. And again, you'll find the book of Ephesians just nestled among a, a bunch of other smaller letters of the Apostle Paul there in your New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to read from verses 3 through 14, so uh, you can follow along in your copy of the Bible as I read from mine. Uh, This is the uh, New International Translation. Hear then what Holy Scripture says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight, in love. In love He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purchased in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In Him... We were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. And you, you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Uh, For some reason, inexplicable to me, some of you, many of you, perhaps most of you this morning, take great joy during this season of the year sitting down on a Saturday afternoon in a comfortable chair to watch Penn State football. Uh, You've been doing it for years, and you will continue to do it, and when the season ends, you will have two emotions At the same time, you will be disappointed that the season is over and you will already be anticipating the beginning of the next season. Uh, Maybe your chair doesn't call you on Saturday. Maybe it calls you on Sunday afternoon or Monday evening. Uh, If you're a fan of the Phillies, aren't they attracting your attention a little bit more uh, these days as we enter into playoff season? Uh, If you're a seriously devoted fan and you're not able to watch your team play live, maybe you record the games to watch later. And if you're a real purist, uh, if you have a game at home waiting for you, you don't want to hear anything about it. 
Uh, you might walk into a work or you're walking to church and, and someone will start talking about you. Say, don't tell me. I don't want to know. I don't want to hear what happened. I want to watch this game without any idea of what's going to happen. Uh, maybe that's you. Some of you here probably just don't care whether you know the end from the beginning. You, you're going to watch it regardless. It doesn't matter. Actually, knowing the end from the beginning is not just a sports question. Some of you love to read mystery novels. How, how exact about this are you? You make it one-third of the way through the book. And do you find yourself peeking at the end to find out who did it, what happened? Uh, maybe you've ever read a, a review of a movie or, or you see a story about a new film and, and, and if you get to a point where in, in big letters it says, spoiler alert, you know, they're, they're going to tell you what's going to happen in the movie. Do you read those sentences or do you skip to the end of it? Hmm. On those occasions when you know the end from the beginning, um, don't you watch or read differently? You can't help it when, when you're watching. If, if you know that your favorite team is going to win, when, when their quarterback gets sacked, it, it doesn't bother you quite as much. Or uh, uh, if you know they're going to lose, their temporary successes, a field goal here, a touchdown there, they don't impress you as much as they normally would because you know the end from the beginning. And everything in the story takes on a different shade of meaning. Uh, knowing, how the, knowing the end from the beginning doesn't just change how you watch games or how you read books. Um, think about how differently you would live if you knew the end from the beginning. Um, uh, my wife Kathy has been for uh, several months been looking for a new job. She works uh, one shift a week at her job and we think that uh, she could... Uh, she didn't move from an office to a hospital setting at another shift. It would greatly, uh, it, we'd be able to handle it and it would certainly help fill out the family budget a little bit. She, she's been looking for a long time. Well, she had an interview last week and uh, the interviewer said to her, I'll call you on Friday. Well, she didn't call on Friday. Uh, and then she didn't call on Monday either. Uh, Kathy called her on Tuesday and left a message which she didn't answer. Um, both of us, spent uh, all week distracted and frankly anxious about this. This is not a good reflection on someone who's preached a lot of sermons on worry. Uh, I didn't know the end from the beginning and it was troubling me. Had I known what was going to happen, I could have dealt with the disappointment and moved on. All right, that's fine. Or I could have been glad for the good news and focused better on what I was doing. But not knowing the end from the beginning or in the middle, that can be excruciating, can it? Just bothersome. We're working <coughs> our way slowly through the book of Ephesians these days, and these opening verses that I just read are a blessing. It's a very Old Testamentish form of writing. Uh, where Paul is calling the Ephesians to worship. It's a call to worship that is theologically dense. It's doctrinally dense material. Uh, Paul is telling us here, and it's right, all theology, all doctrine, all truths about God, when we know them, when we hear them, as we receive them, they are to redound to God's glory and praise. When he speaks about himself, we say, yes, that is excellent. Uh, that's what all doctrine is supposed to do. Uh, Paul is telling us these truths to call us to worship. 
but He also is setting the table for the life change that is going to come when we get to chapter 4. This 12 verses that I just read, this long sentence is a call to worship in God and an invitation to remember certain things about Him that will change your life. Now, last week from verses 3 through 6, we struggled through these difficult lines about God's sovereignty. God is the God who has laid out the end from the beginning. Before the foundation of the world, He has chosen us in Christ. In love, He has predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ. Here's the end. That's the what of the end. In verses 7 through 12, though, the passage that we're going to focus on this morning, Paul moves from talking about the what, the, the what of the end, to the who of the end. Here's what's going to happen. Who is going to be the one who is going to bring it about? Who is going to be active in, in making uh, what God has determined so? Um, it's not surprising. <laughs> shouldn't be surprising to you. We're in a Christian church, and the answer to the question of the who in the Bible is Jesus. That's that's the who that we think about. In fact, uh, this message of these five verses, verses 7 through 12, could easily be summarized in this sentence. Uh, From the very beginning to the very end, Christ is the one who secures your life. Uh, This is the good news. This is the blessing from God the Father. This is the cause for our rejoicing from the very beginning to the very end. Christ is the one who secures your life. Um, If you're interested, you'll find that sentence written at the top of a blue sheet that's in your bulletin. Maybe some of you found it already. Uh, There's a note sheet there for you that might be helpful to you. Someone suggested to me last week that since you were talking about our Ephesians studies in small groups, it would be handy to have sheets like this. So they may be appearing on a regular basis. It's not a promise this morning, just um, a suggestion. But it's there. And there's that sentence. And if you're looking at that sentence, you, you, you might have a question. If, if, if I were sitting in a pew and I heard a preacher say that from the beginning to the very end, Christ is the one who secures your life, I, I, might, under, I might ask, um, why is this point worth making here? Um, isn't this something that we should all know? I mean, isn't this something that we all believe? It's something true, but yeah, I, I know that. I, I understand it. If you're here this morning and you're someone who would not describe yourself as a Christian, or you're trying to figure out what it means to follow Christ, this sentence is one of the ways in which I can tell you that Christianity is unique among all the other faiths of the world. Christianity is unique in how it focuses, how it centers uh, so significantly around the person at the center of the faith. Uh, take uh, Islam, for example. If you go and talk to a devout Muslim, uh, you will find out from them that they believe that the Quran is the ultimate revelation from Allah, from God, and the Quran came through Muhammad the Prophet. And Muhammad the Prophet is highly revered. And if you could talk to this uh, Muslim and, and probe him a little bit about his beliefs, and if you were able to speak carefully and respectfully about Muhammad, you probably could take this Muslim to the point where they would admit that of, uh, of the revelation, the Quran is more important than Muhammad. That, that um, 
the Quran, Allah could have given the Quran through some other prophet other than Muhammad. Muhammad, as an important mouthpiece as he was, uh, was not central to the revelation of the Quran. He was just the mouthpiece. Uh, as great a prophet Moses is, um, the God of the Bible could and did raise up other prophets. Uh, it is not the Moses that matters, it's the Torah that matters to Judaism. Although Moses is important. Christianity, though, is different. Everything for us revolves around Jesus. Without Him, as He is in the Bible, at its core, Christianity is worthless. Uh, It's not a good ethical system. It's not a comforting program of rituals. In fact, Christianity without Christ is powerless and empty. So that's why we're thrilled at the prospect of speaking any time we can about the fact that Christ is the most compelling person ever to walk the face of the earth. Because our faith centers around Him. He's the one who from the very beginning to the very end secures your life. That's why we want to say that. That's why we want to affirm that. I suspect most of you know that, but I wonder if you really know it. There's a difference between knowing and knowing, isn't there? Hershey Park in 2008 built a new roller coaster. It was called the Fahrenheit. Uh, they built the, the Fahrenheit in 2008 in several stages. You might say they built the Fahrenheit in degrees. Um, but I know about <laughs> uh, I know about the Fahrenheit. I know it takes 85 seconds to get. Uh, it t- it's a ride that takes 85 seconds long. It takes you 121 feet in the air. It drops you at a 97 degree negative angle. It turns you upside down in a loop that reaches 107 feet in the air. And I know that it reaches a maximum speed of 58 miles per hour and that it has theater seating in the cars. I know all those things about the Fahrenheit, but I've never ridden the Fahrenheit, so there's a sense in which I don't know that roller coaster. Some of you have ridden that roller coaster and you might not know all those facts, but you've been on it and you know what that drop feels like or that loop is, is like. You, you know about the G-forces involved in riding that roller coaster. I know it and you know it, but we don't know it in the same way. Paul wants you to know uh, what Christ, uh, he wants you to know what he is writing about Christ, not just intellectually, but experientially. He wants you to feel its weight. He wants your knowledge of what he is writing about to overflow into your life. He wants it to be so significant that it changes your life. That knowing this has a significant difference in the type of person that you are, the type of employee, the type of church member, the type of spouse, the type of parent and son or daughter. So that's why Paul affirms this. That's why he says it again to the Ephesians, something that they already know. He wants to highlight this who of history. And and I want you to see this morning two things that he says that this who of history does as our life secure. Christ is the one who secures our life. Well, how does he do it? What does it mean that from beginning to end, Christ Uh, secures your life. Two things that I want to point out to you this morning. First, Christ has rescued us. Christ has rescued us. That's the focus of verse 7. 
In Him, the text says, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Now, the word redemption is, is part of our vocabulary. It's a word that we use in church. Uh, it, it means to set someone free by paying a price. Uh, redemption has those two elements. Someone is being held captive and needs to be set free. And in order to set them free, you need to pay the price. So redemption means to set someone free by paying a price. And many people want to point out here that Paul certainly, as a man living in the Roman Empire and traveling the way he did, saw Roman slave markets. And this is a word that they would use in the slave market. If you wanted to set a slave free, you would pay money and they could be then set free as a slave. That's true. I think Paul might have had something else in mind, though. Because Paul was not just a well-traveled member of the citizen of the Roman Empire. Paul was a before he became a follower of Christ, a devout Jew. And for him, the word redemption rings different bells in the back of his mind. For Paul, he would be thinking about the Old Testament's most compelling freedom story. He'd be thinking about the Exodus. Now, you know about the Exodus. The Exodus, of course, is those great events described for us in the Old Testament when Charlton Heston himself went to Egypt and demanded of Pharaoh that God set the Israelites free. Um, it, was, it, uh, it was Moses, actually. And, and, and the Israelites were in Egypt as slaves and they were subject to the cruelty of Pharaoh. Their baby boys were butchered, their bodies were beaten, their labor was abused, and God rescued them. He redeemed them. And that moment of redemption through the Red Sea involving the ten plagues became the signature thought in the people of Israel when they thought about their relationship with God. For us as Americans, we think July 4th, 1776 is our day of independence, right? As, as, as that date plugs into your brain, that's how the Exodus plugged into the brain of devout Jews in the Old Testament. Paul tells them uh, that, that, that these believers have experienced redemption like God's power on display in bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, God has rescued us. And he tells us what we have been rescued from. Um, he, he tells us in verse 7, we have received the forgiveness of sins. Now this word forgiveness has prisoner overtones too. According to the Bible, all human beings are trapped by nature and by choice in a stance of deep, pervasive rebellion against our Creator, against the Creator of the universe. This is the disposition of rebellion. It's embedded in our nature. It's like a computer virus that has infected the whole operating system. This prison of our own making tells us why life is so hard. Uh, if you're in Nashville, Tennessee this week, you might have read in the headlines of those cities' newspapers about a hearing that took place. There was a 25-year-old woman in Nashville who uh, was pregnant with twin boys. She secretly gave birth to them in her parents' house and then uh, strangled her two new twin boys and threw away the, the bodies. Uh, she was arrested for murder, and um, in a pre-trial hearing, they called forth all these witnesses to speak about her. Uh, she's a 25-year-old young lady, as I said. She, 
she, the reason she did this, she claimed, is because she was afraid that her parents would find out that she was pregnant and they would uh, be very angry with her. So this is her effort to cover up what she had done. And they trotted out these witnesses. Her parents actually testified at this pretrial hearing about what an obedient daughter she was and how they couldn't have asked for a better uh, a relationship with their daughter. And they, they got members of her church to come forward and, and speak about what a humble and meek and kind young lady this was. This is the emphasis of the newspaper, is the testimony of everybody about how nice she was and what a good person she is. The, the problem there is that they seem to be ignoring the obvious disconnect she may be a nice person, but there are two people who are dead, and she murdered them. And you look around at people, and, and you see nice people all around you, people who do good things. But the Bible is very clear that underneath that, what is a veneer of goodness is just a stance of rebellion against God. You, you can't separate your outward behavior from your inward disposition to him. And the Bible says that our inward disposition to him is one of sin, of trespassing, of ignoring God's commands, dishonoring our creator. And redemption is the process by which Christ freed us from the penalty of sin that we owned. That we owed God. And, and Paul tells us the price. He tells us the redemption price. Did you see that in verse 7? In Him we have redemption through His blood. This is the price of our redemption. This is how Jesus paid for us. The price paid was death. Now we're in the streamline of the Bible. God, the Creator of the universe, will not tolerate those who despoil what He has made. It's not right for him to tolerate rebels. This is an act of God's love. God loves what he has made and he will not allow it to be desecrated. And you and I are the desecrators. So God uh, uh, demands a penalty for our uh, breaking of this world that he has made. And it's death. Jesus came and offered his eternal life for my eternal death. He bore the wrath of God in my place so that I might become not an object of God's wrath, but of His love. Christ dealt this decisive blow to sin. If sin is like a prison, Christ is the one who broke down the prison walls, disarmed all the guards, tied up the commandant, and set us all free. And He did it on the cross. Now, even more, Paul tells us about the extent of this purchase price. Look at verse uh, at the end of verse 7. How are we to think about this? This forgiveness that we have, this redemption, is in accordance with the riches, with the abundant wealth of God's grace that He lavished on us, that He, that he gave us abundantly with all wisdom and understanding. We're, we're approaching John's language in John 3.16. God so loved the world that He gave not just His Son, John says, His one and only Son, His only begotten Son, this rich gift, this lavish grace to us. Now, thinking about that and observing that might make us, help us get a better handle on a couple of the things that we talked about last week we talked about the doctrines of election and predestination. 
Um, we wrestled with those words. God's sovereignty is a focus here in this passage too. Again, look at verse 11. Here's, it, 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 here it comes, that same word, those same words. In Him we were also chosen, verse 11 says, having pre, been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Um, we can grasp what Paul is saying here about God's sovereign power. We can't explain it all. We don't understand everything. But we can understand that, that God's that election is the, the choice of God's sovereign grace that without Him acting decisively, no one would choose to follow Jesus Christ on their own. God has chosen some specifically for salvation. He's emphasizing this, Paul is. He has predestined their destiny. If you struggle with that, I bet you struggle because it doesn't sound fair to you. How is it fair that God uh, would work decisively in one life but not in someone else's life? That just doesn't seem right or fair. These verses might help, actually, the ones that we're looking at this morning, verse, verse 7 and 8. Um, not by answering all the questions, but maybe by changing your focus. Here's something. Listen, I, I want to say something starkly, perhaps. If, if when you try to weave in your brain together God's sovereignty, if you are thinking more about the fairness or the lack thereof than about the grace involved in rescuing anyone, I don't think you're thinking about election clearly. If in response to God's great work of from eternity past planning and through the past bringing into fruition His gracious work, if thinking about that makes you say first and foremost, that's not fair, instead of saying first and foremost, what grace, I'm not sure you're thinking about election the way Paul wants you to think about election. Uh, maybe an illustration will help. Uh, in the 1950s, a Danish author who published under this pseudonym, uh, Isaac Dennison, wrote a story called Babette's Feast. Maybe some of you have read Babette's Feast. It's a, it's a charming story. It's been made to a, a film a couple of times. Uh, it's a great story for self-righteous people to read. Huh. Uh, it takes place at, uh, in the late 1800s on the coast of Denmark, and the main characters are two sisters old spinsters named Martina and Philippa, or Philippa. They were named for Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon, who uh, was uh, Martin Luther's uh, compatriot. Uh, these two women were raised by their father in a strict fundamentalist Christian sect, uh, and they, they have all the earmarks on their lives of toxic fundamentalism. They're grim, they're cold, they're demanding, they're judgmental, they're self-righteous, they're angry, they're divisive, and they're very devout. Uh, so devout, in fact, that both of these young women, uh, women who were beautiful young ladies, had an opportunity for love, and out of devotion to their father's strict sect, they, they turned down the opportunity for love. Well, they aged and lived in their house. And one day, uh, a woman showed up at their doorstep. It's a woman named Babette. And Babette, Babette is fleeing from war in France. And she becomes their cook and their housekeeper. And she lives in their merciless, cold world for 14 years. 
She left Paris and she left everything that she had back there. One of her friends, very faithfully in Paris, every week has been buying her lottery tickets. And after 14 years, Babette discovers uh, that she won, that the ticket that was purchased for Babette won the lottery, 10,000 francs. And now Babette has enough money to leave Denmark. The situation is calm. She can go back to Paris. She can buy a small home and live off of that money for the rest of her life. Before she goes, though, she decides that she's going to throw a dinner for Martina and Philippa and the rest of their friends. So she starts planning. Everything in Martina and Philippa's house is stark and plain. It's gray, it's grim, just like them. So she goes and buys, the first thing Babette buys is a tablecloth and some candles, a brightly lit, table, uh, brightly colored tablecloth. And, and she buys some crystal so that when you light the candles on the table, the crystal's there and it, it sparkles out the light from the candles. And she goes and she buys, uh, she plans the menu and she works and she works and she works and she buys this lavish food that she's going to serve to Martine and, and Philippa. Uh, now, <laughs> Martine and Philippa, being the good, strict fundamentalists that they are, decide that it would be a sin for them to enjoy this food. So all they're going to do is they're just going to sit there and eat and not smile and not say anything. But then the food is served. And the courses come. And something begins to happen in these cold hearts of these women and their friends that are gathered there. The, the flavors of the food and the beauty of its presentation begin to change the atmosphere in the room where the, the sisters and their guests are, are sitting. As the courses come, they begin to relax and they begin to smile and they begin to love. In, in fact, with the companionship and the warmth uh, of this evening and the wonder of Babette's feast, they begin to reach out to one another and they forgive old wounds and they, they set down their judgments and their bitterness and, and the people actually in the room become as, as rich and as satisfying as the food has been. The, the glow of the candles becomes transplanted into their hearts. The guests are gone and the sisters are, are uh, greeting Babette and telling her how much they enjoyed the food and, and they, they mentioned to her how they're really going to miss her. And then she tells them that the meal and the dishes and the glasses and the candles cost her 10,000 francs and she has no more money to move back to Paris. Now, let me tell you how you're not supposed to respond to that story. This is what you're not supposed to do in response to the story. You're not supposed to say to Babette or of Babette, you're not supposed to say, you know what, she really was unfair that evening. She really should have invited more people from town. I mean, it's not right of her. There were probably people in town who would have wanted to come to this dinner and who would have been changed. And it's not fair that Babette didn't invite them. It's not fair that she, she took her money and just spent it on those people that were invited. That is not how you're supposed to respond to the story. You're supposed to uh, re react just like those women and their guests. It's supposed to melt your heart. It's supposed to change you. See, the lavishness of God's gift, which comes to us from a plan God formed in eternity past, is not supposed to make you begrudge the fairness of it. If all you're thinking about is it's not fair, you are not thinking about the grace of God involved. 
It's supposed to move you not to say, that's not fair, God, you've got to do more. It's supposed to move you to, to uh, uh, overflow, to plead with God that His grace would be extended to other people. Oh God, you have shown me such kindness. Will you take this kindness and spread it more and farther so that everybody can experience this kindness? It is so tremendous, this grace and this kindness that you've given me. How sweet and awesome is this place with Christ within her doors where everlasting love displays the choices of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, Think about how Isaac Watts describes what, happened when a, what happens when a church gets together. All of our hearts and all of our songs join to admire the feast of God's abundance. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear Thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a woeful choice and rather starve than come? "'Twas that same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had refused to taste and perished in our sin. And now we move to this, God, you have been so kind, will you be kind more, more? Pity the nations, O our God, constrain the earth to come. Send thy victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. We long to see your churches full, that all the chosen race might with one voice and heart and soul sing your redeeming grace. This is how you think about your neighbors and your children and your sister and your brother-in-law who are not followers of Christ. You come before God and you say, you have been so kind to me. Riches lavished on me. Will you spread that kindness, God, please, to them? That's how you think about your neighbors when you drive home. When you pull in your street and you go into your driveway and you see their houses say, oh God, please grace them. Your, your marvelous, lavish, rich grace, spread it to them. Sovereignly, powerfully, indisputably, spread it to them too. Please. That's how this passage wants us to think about God's sovereign grace. To be filled with it ourselves so that we plead with God that it might go others. The the passage continues here and it moves from what Christ has done, his life-securing work in the past, to life-securing work in the future. Uh, The text says Christ has rescued us. Secondly, though, the text says that Christ will reign over all. He will reign over all. One of the lavish gifts of God uh, is wisdom to know His plans. And God's plan, according to His good pleasure, is that in the fullness of time, Christ will rule over all. That's what verses 9 and 10 say. Everything in heaven on earth under Christ's authority. This is how the story of the Bible ends. This is how God is going to reveal His glory and His grace. He's going to make Jesus Christ the undisputed ruler of the world. 
He will rule and His reign will be perfectly just and it will be balanced with abundant grace. His reign will be perfectly wise and it will be matched with absolute power. He will have undisputed knowledge of all issues that come before Him, all peoples, all circumstances, and He will rule over them with mercy and kindness and perfect justice. This is going to be awesome and it's God's grace gift to you to know this. This is the end. Christ ruling over all. It's God's kindness that He has revealed this to us. In the summer of 2008, I started seeing bumper stickers. Maybe you did too. They uh, were bumper stickers that said, 1-20-09, the end of an error. The end of an error. Um, uh, they were bumper stickers from those who were tired of the presidency of George Bush. His presidency came to an end on 1-20-09. Uh, Democrats couldn't wait for Barack Obama to assume office on that day. Now, it's the Republicans that are hoping to unseat the president so we can reverse the mistake we made in 2008 by electing him, right? The end of that error. Uh, The promise of every political office or the promise of every political campaign is that if we get our guy in office, everything will be all right. Everything will be fixed. But that's not true. Regardless of who was president in 2013, Washington is still going to be a mess. But, but, when Jesus reigns, when Jesus rules, it will be right, it will be good and just and peaceful and refreshing. And to know that, to anticipate that, is to be filled with joy. Do you really know that? It moves me to say, if this is how Christ is going to reign, if this is His reign going to be in the future, I want Him, O oh Lord, to reign right now here in my life, in, in my church, in my family. See, Paul is tuning your ears. He's getting you ready so that when he says in chapter 4, in light of Christ's rescuing work and Christ's reigning work, this is how you're supposed to live now. And he begins and he says, walk worthy of the Lord. Be humble. Be patient. When you get angry, and there are things that should make you angry, when you get angry, don't sin. Forgive as Christ forgave other people. Uh, Build one another up. Say things that are helpful for building people, not, not tearing people down. And Paul is saying to us in Ephesians 1, he's preparing us to hear those words. He's preparing us so that when we get to chapter 4, we say, yes, 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 Christ who will reign over all, whose reign will be good, I will listen to whatever you have to say to me. He's preparing you. You know the end. This is the end. We're not at the beginning, we're in the middle. You, You know the end from the middle now. And you're going to see the story unfold in your life. You're going to see how the game is played. Trust me, when it's over, you'll be satisfied with the outcome. You'll be filled with joy. That's why Paul, when he commands us to, uh, to praise him, we say, blessed be this God who is worthy of our worship. Let's pray, shall we? Father, again, we come before you this morning uh, having looked at a passage of Scripture that is uh, nothing but a call to worship. And if we read and understand this 
this, these lines aright, it will move us to say, blessed be the name of our Lord God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We say that and we affirm that this morning as we remember your great work in rescuing us and as we anticipate your greater work of reigning over all. Fill us with joy. Fill us with uh, the longing to see your grace spread far and wide. You have lavished it upon us. Uh, Satisfy us with it anew and afresh this day we pray according to your kindness. And together we say these things in Jesus' name. Amen.